Jose Mensa, redefining art and culture. The visionary curator and cultural critic is shaping our perception of the world. From groundbreaking exhibitions to collaborations with creative icons like Jay-Z, join us for an extraordinary conversation on art's transformative power. Let's dive in. I'm always curious when I talk to curators, at what point did you realize, and how, how old were you, did you realize that you could make a career as a curator? Um, I would say I was 35. Um, I started curating when I was 28. Mm -hmm. But for, you know, from 28 to 35, I had a corporate job. So I was doing marketing at Viacom, you know, because my entry into the arts was as a photographer, started doing shows, didn't really uh, enjoy the pressure that came with being an artist. Um, so I just started writing about art. And from there, I identified that there was an opportunity to exhibit the works of emerging artists, particularly emerging artists of color. Um, because back in 2009, 10, you know, you can count the amount of galleries that were showing, you know, young artists of African descent, African-American, Latinx, Asian. And so most of the time we had to work with nonprofit art spaces or artist run spaces. So they didn't really have the budgets to pay, you know, a curatorial fee that allowed you to survive. And so for me, I had a job. The job was fine. I was doing my curating. Everybody knew it wasn't a secret life. You know, I would bring my colleagues to some of my exhibitions. No, because sometimes we have these these personal passions that, like, it's kind of like your five to nine that you do on your own. You know, some people may be like an opera singer, but they work in, like, you know, as an engineer or something like that. And so for me, I was very open about it. And I think for me, that allowed me to have the balance. And then in 2015, upon the encouragement of my, my boss at the time, Angelita Sierra, I was working at Nickelodeon doing digital marketing. She really pushed me to say, hey, you know, you're still young enough to get another job if it doesn't work out. But your passion for the art, you will live a life of regret if we don't really chase this thing, you know, 100%. And so she fired me. <laughs> but um, it, it came from a place of love. I think I didn't really understand it until, uh, you know, I was older. I think at the time I was like shocked and surprised, but she honestly gave me one of the biggest gifts you can give somebody in, 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 in their life, right? To see the vision to understand the passion and encourage that because a lot of times folks aren't that generous. And so pretty much once I tra made the transition, I had to figure out how to survive. I had to figure out how to pay my rent. Um, and so, you know, one of the first steps for me, I participated in the ICI uh, independent curator international curatorial intensive so that was like March 2016. I met a lot of incredible curators who have become friends and colleagues and we've collaborated. And my mindset basically shifted to treating myself as a corporation, an organization. Um, so the same way if I was working for somebody else and, you know, you're busting your butt 
60, 70, 80 hours. I was like, you know, what does that look like to do it for myself? And so I took that mindset with me in terms of, you know, doing exhibitions, doing public programs, writing, co-founding Art Noir, and really just putting all that energy into something that I love and enjoy. And, you know, the last several years, it's it's been a blessing, you know, to, you know, you you you, you hear the cliche, if you love it, or you do what you love is not work. Um, but it's true, right? Because like, you know, putting in those extra hours, getting it a little bit early, making those smaller sacrifices in the effort to do really great projects for me, to be in support of artists that I believe in. I mean, that's that's the greatest gift that you know anybody could have. So let's go back to day they had the conversation with your boss that she was like, Hey, I'm doing you a favor right here. You might not see it that way, but this is going to be good for you. And then you walk out of Nickelodeon, you unemployed now. I'm sure there's a lot of emotions, a lot going on, a lot of uncertainty, but what was, did you had a plan of action? Did you decide, all right, so this is my next step or yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So she gave me two, three months notice. So it wasn't like yeah. you're fired today. So I had time to prepare. Um, you know, again, at the time, I didn't understand the gift she was giving me, so I was trying to find another job. Because I was just like, you know, curating doesn't pay at the time. Um, unless you worked at an institution, which at the time, you know, I didn't have enough reps under my belt to be applying for an institutional job at a museum. And so... You know, I just basically sought the insights of mentors, friends. Um, the intensive for me was important because if you look at the colleagues who were in that intensive with me, you know, some are senior curators at prestigious museums. Some are doing independent projects. Like everybody's doing incredible things in their career. So for me, it was understanding that I can do this. Right. Because I think a lot of times in life in general, you know, you you are afforded opportunities and you question, how did I get here? How did I get in this room? Wow, this person's like PhD. How can I compare? And, you know, for me, I leaned into what made me different and unique. You know, my degree is in business management. My master's is in hospitality management and marketing. So for me, I'm coming to this with an entrepreneurial point of view. But having put in the work to understand um, the arts from my point of view. And so to be able to build out exhibitions that feel unique, that feel special, that take into consideration the viewer, but then also thinking about external components. So I basically, you know, I took a step back and just assessed, okay, what are the opportunities for myself and just started going crazy doing shows. Um, I mean, people ask me how many shows a year I do. I stop counting. Um, but just any show I can get my hands on, I would do it. If there was an opportunity to consult that led to a retainer, I would do it. Um, just anything that was bringing in an income. If I could help, an artist sell a work and place it, I would do it. So for me, the plan was just to pay my rent. 
Mm. There wasn't this kind of like five, 10 year plan that in 10 years I'll be a museum director. I just wanted to survive doing this thing and see if I can do it. And then once kind of the universe put things in place for me, opportunities kept coming. I was putting in the work. And now, I mean, you you know, I have before that seven years of curating. So it's not like I'm just starting. It's just mm-hmm. this is chapter two. And chapter two just allows me to be 100% fully focused on what I wanted to do. And so I just took that attitude and just, you know, was able to consult on some really great projects, um, do some incredible exhibitions, build my profile, collaborate with some incredible people. And then as my profile built, then, you know, the fees would increase to a point where like, okay, I can do a show for X amount and, you know, three, four shows a year. And that would be okay to pay my rent and have like a, a livable wage. And then, yeah, so that, that was kind of the plan to that point. And then I got an opportunity to... Uh, Join MoCat, uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Detroit, as senior curator, and that afforded me an insight into what the institutional perspective was. And I did that for a while, and then, you know, upon leaving, then the mindset shifts that okay, I can be a better partner to museums if I'm independent, because I'm not an employee there. I'm a consultant. I'm a hired gun. But I understand the nuances of what makes most institutions tick and I know where their challenges. And so that allows me to add value when I'm bringing an exhibition to that city, because then I can think outside the box of what they normally would do. But then I can also just kind of bring resources that they may not have access to because I've been doing this since 2008 and build great relationships with artists, writers, curators, collectors that and and you and I hope you know regard in the industry that allows me to leverage a lot of these resources and relationships. When you were having that conversation with friends and families, and you say, "Listen, I'm going all in on this now," what are what are they saying? Some of the voices were you hearing? A lot of people were hesitant or fully supportive because you usually have those both sides coming at you. So, what was the most of the feedback they were getting? I mean, everybody was fully supportive, at least outwardly. I'm sure there were some people who had doubts. But for me, I'm the type of person when I'm all in, I'm all in. Um, I think my family was super supportive. My mom was just like, you know, as long as you can take care of yourself, you know, we support what you're doing. And I did the work, you know, so, you know, doing the research, building relationships, doing any kind of like, workshop or program and it's been interesting to talk to friends now who are like wow i remember when you said you were all in and you were walking around with like books on curating or the art market and to see it come to fruition i think for them some of them it's been inspiring because sometimes you just don't know what to make of someone's choice right because it's not necessarily a choice that was hurting anybody, you know? So I think people are just going to say, Hey, do your thing. Um, but I did have a lot of friends who were just like, you know, if you're going to do this, just make sure you're like 100% focused. Right. Because I think there was a moment where I was curating, right. I was doing too many things. And so I had to make a decision that, okay, 
And a lot of those things I was doing to survive. And I had to make a decision that, okay, I'm going to do this curating thing. That's going to be when you Google me, look me up, have a conversation, I'm leading with that. I still do other things that are related to curating, but I also noticed that when people would introduce me and, you know, they were hopefully leading me to other opportunities, they struggled introducing me because they say, oh, he's a curator, entrepreneur, writer. And so, like, I noticed that confusion. Mm. And so I said, okay, we're just going to truncate and focus on curating. There are things that can come under that. Um, but curatorial practice is going to be the foundation that's going to ground everything that we do. And at what point did you realize, like, I got this. We're past this whole paying the bills kind of month-to-month scenario. I have a clear vision. I understand the the, the industry, the market, and, and this is now it's uh, full steam ahead. I think when I did my first museum show. So my first museum show was at Mad Smoka. Uh, I collaborated with Susan Cross, who's an incredible friend, mentor, curator, and we organized the first solo exhibition of Alice and Janae Hamilton who is a multimedia artist that I've known for several years. And that exercise for me, because the shows at Mass Mocha are a little bit different, they're up for a year. Normally an exhibition mm-hmm. is like, you know, four to six weeks if it's commercial, 12 weeks if it's a museum. So this was a different level of effort that had to be exuded because the show had to be relevant for a year. It had to be relevant for multiple visits. We had to think about programming. Um, there were a lot of variables that I had to take into consideration in collaboration with Susan and Allison. And when that exhibition opened, Allison got her New York Times write-up. I was like, okay, I think we got something. And, you know, along the lines, I think you just have small moments that affirm what it is you're doing. So... 2021, I had the opportunity to co-curate the Athens Biennial with Om Social Club and Pocoyo. And anybody who's done a biennial knows that's a Herculean task. We're doing this in the middle of COVID. I think we have over 80 artists. And to execute that at the highest level, incredible feedback from not only artists, but from just people who attend, uh, biennials, viewers, press, partners. I think that was another moment was like, okay, I got this. You know, because for many curators, like the, the biennial is like the pinnacle because mm-hmm. it's like the most exhaustive exercise. And then you're working with kind of budgets that aren't like millions of dollars. You know, so you have to work within the constraints of your resources. But I think we did a great job, you know, based on the support that we had. But I would say the Mass Mocha show, the biennial, and then now, you know, currently I have on tour uh, a Marco Boafo solo show, Souls of Black Folks, which started at Moat. And that opened fall of 2021. And then we took it to Cam Houston last summer. We're taking it to Seattle Art Museum this summer and Denver Art Museum in the fall. So I think, you know, the reality is that you're constantly, at least for me, checking in. 
to making sure that like I'm still enjoying this. It's still fun. It's still challenging. I think there's never a moment where like, I mean, it's a degree in terms of you got this in terms of the actual work of curating, right? But there's always for me another level. How do you make the works more complicated, more interesting, more sophisticated, more interactive, more accessible? Um, so I'm constant. It's almost like you know, it's a constant improvement that I'm searching for. So I don't think I, I necessarily am thinking about like if I got this or not. I mean, I've been doing it long enough to figure it out. But it's just been exciting to have these kind of milestones, you know, over the course of my career that just remind me that, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So don't take that for granted, you know, remain humble, but also be bold in your approach. Because you have a marketing background. When you start to look into exhibitions and, and what's the next project, do you try to pay attention what's going on in the public eye, what's going on in terms of the market, trends, all those things is part of uh, the decision making? Or is it more like you know a project or a passion project that you really, really want to see come from fruition? I think it's a little bit of both, right? Because if we're talking about contemporary art, for me, when I think about contemporary art, it's supposed to be responsive to the issues of the day, the concerns of the day. Um, I try not to lean too much towards trends because then that is not me expressing my point of view, right? So my goal is to have a point of view, have a perspective. You know, I could re respond to an issue you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm developing a concept for a show where I'm thinking about, you know, notions of vulnerability because I'm realizing, you know, three years out of COVID, a lot of us have been traumatized. I don't think we talk about mm -hmm. it. You know, um, the dynamics of cities have changed where like, you know, I grew up in New York and, you know, certain times in the year, you know, outside of summer and maybe warmer months, things are shutting down at 10, 11. Or you have to go, like, to a particular neighborhood to be able to stay out late, right? And that's, like, something I'm not used to. You know, growing up in New York, we were going to nightclubs 16, 17 years old till 3, 4 in the morning, get up, go to school the next day. And so understanding that, like, social dynamics have changed, psychographics have changed, and so for me, it, it has to be a balance of all of these variables because you want to do shows that are relevant. You want to do shows that excite people, but you also want to make an effort to get, you know, go where the hockey puck is going. So how can you be like one or two steps ahead? Right. So like I did a show last year, um, Ghosts of Empires with Ben Brown. We did that in Hong Kong and London. And I was looking at this intersection between the African diaspora and the South Asian diaspora, right? Because I knew that there was focus on Black artists, the diaspora. But for me, I was seeing this incredible quantum leap of just, you know, AAPI artists, artists from the Asian diaspora who weren't necessarily on the mainstream focus. And so for me, it was like, okay, what happens when you bring these two together? 
and that birthed an incredible exhibition, both in Hong Kong and London. And a lot of those artists who are in those shows now are getting solo shows, solo museum shows. So for me, it's also just like, where's the hockey puck going? How can I be in front of it a little bit, you know, but stay within the tempo of like what's happening? And then there are other times where you just want to go like counter to like what's the interest, right? So like I think it was maybe two years ago, 2021, you know, I was frustrated at the lack of attention that abstract artists were getting. And so I curated a, a solo presentation of an artist, Patrick Alston, who's from the Bronx, like me, all abstract show. We did that with Ross and Kramer. And it did incredibly well, sold out, placed his works with some great collections. And I really gave Patrick some momentum. And I'm working on a show this fall, co-curating with Paul Anthony Smith, called Between the Themes. It's, again, this kind of exploration of what's happening um, in between the themes and where do artists really have the freedom to create and express themselves. And so, you know, it's a spectrum of abstract figuration to abstraction, which I think is an important conversation to have. And, you know, so it's, it's super exciting. And so you, you're always recalibrating, right? I think there's never like a set formula because I think if you're working on a set formula, it doesn't allow you to adapt to the changing market conditions, the changing interests, changing resources, changing mandates that a lot of museums may have or institutions. And so for me, it's just, you know, being as flexible and nimble as I can has always just been a competitive advantage that uh, has allowed me to just, you know, do some really exciting projects. Now you talk about being adapt to big changes overall in the industry, in the market. Which one have you seen and noticed that really impact tremendously in the last few years that you feel like really changed things or, or nothing? Or no, there hasn't really much of a change at all. What do you think? I think COVID was a catalyst to get us to do this, what we're doing right now, right? Mm -hmm. To engage virtually before because I knew so many entrepreneurs who were starting digital platforms as a way to get access to art, to buy art. You know, I mean, some were successful. I think Artsy definitely was on that trajectory. Mm -hmm. But if you talk to a traditional kind of old school collector, they weren't buying work online. You know, they weren't buying work off a of PDF. You know, maybe some. But I think because of COVID and because we couldn't interact, you kind of had to make those judgment calls, you know? So just the OVRs, for example, with a lot of the fairs. I know with Art Noir, we started doing virtual studio visits because artists were still working in their studios, but they needed a community to kind of share what they were doing. When I think about um, auction houses and how they kind of adapted to kind of be more digitally inclined. And so I think COVID was a catalyst to kind of help us take this quantum leap in terms of how we can use digital tools to, you know, learn about art, buy art, engage with each other. And I think, you know, if that didn't happen, then we, we would be maybe still a couple more years away from that. But because we were forced to, you know, for many people, it was six months, some people it was a year. I think what it's really done is also kind of accelerated this engagement with a globalized market. 
which for me is exciting because there's some people I talk to every day and I've never met them in person. But we text or we DM or whatever the case may be. We're sharing alpha with each other about shows, you know, because I can't go everywhere. And they'll say, hey, there was this great show in Rio, this artist, you should check them out. And then if I'm interested, I'll DM them. We do a virtual visit and we begin a relationship. And so I think, you know, ironically, the world has become smaller because of these digital tools. And I, and I emphasize that they're tools and not silver bullets. I think mm-hmm. some people have kind of confused that Instagram and TikTok and Twitter are silver bullets when they're really a tool, um, hopefully in your toolbox of outreach and communication and sharing what it is that you're working on. The interesting about social media is that it feels like, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the artist has more independence than ever before now to really display their work, even engage with curators like you. Uh, but do you feel that, how do we define what an artist, you know, like, what would be a, how do you define what is something they would like to see an exhibition made of, you know, in terms of if you find someone online on Instagram mm. or TikTok, and you do your virtual tools and you develop the relationship, but what separate that specific artist from the rest? There's so much out there. And the fact that the artists perhaps don't have a huge audience, some will have hundreds of thousands, but some not so much. Is that a factor or not so much? So I think to your first point, artists do have a lot of tools and resources at their disposal to allow them to dictate the tempo and energy around their practice. But I think they need to believe it. Mm-hmm. They need to claim that and own that. Not everybody does that. You still have people who are operating in a pre-COVID paradigm where they're hoping somebody will drop from the sky with mana and say, hey, you're incredible. I'm going to give you a solo. We're going to make you a star. That's not how it works, right? I think... For me, I'm looking at intangibles because obviously if we're talking and having a conversation about your practice, I believe the work is good, right? So we've already kind of qualified quality of work. But for me, I'm trying to look at work ethic. You know, does this perspective feel fresh? Um, Is this a unique point of view? What is their upbringing? You know, and I think a lot of that has kind of been accelerated because I've been angel investing the last three years. So when you're looking at a founder, I got to figure out, like, particularly if it's like seed, pre-seed, that that is irrelevant. Now, you could tell me that, you know, you're going to grow 5,000% year over year, but it's just like, okay, but what happens when you run out of money? You know, are you are you that dogged? Are you that focused? and hungry that you can go out and raise whatever additional capital, hire the people you need to hire in order to like keep the train going. And so for me, it's the same thing with artists that, you know, the career of an artist, if they're really in it for the marathon, it's up and down. And so I'm trying to dictate what is the the temperament? What is the, uh, the will, the passion of the artist to navigate the up and down? Right. Because most people can't navigate the up. So, you know, you go from like because for me, I'm looking for artists who have like 500 followers, a thousand followers, because I know it's like early in the journey. We could really have some interesting dialogue. And, you know, 
even if the work is not for me per se, from a curatorial standpoint or a collecting standpoint, I may have a colleague who I can say, hey, look at this. I've talked to the artists, you know, they're putting in the work, they're doing the research, they, you know, they check all the boxes in terms of intangibles that, um, you know, they're coachable, um, that a curator will want to like be in collaboration. And so I'm always looking for that, right? Because you can be the most talented artist, but if you're not coachable, if we, and I'm not saying that you have to do what I say, but like be open and responsive to insights and dialogues because, you know, life is a cycle and sometimes things repeat itself. Right. And, and I want to believe that I've seen a fair amount that could be helpful to artists, you know, but I think the key thing is the artists have to kind of know and believe it because a lot of times, you know, you'll have galleries who are also doing the same thing. They'll find an artist. Hey, your work is great. I'm going to give you a solo show. You know, I'm going to place it with artists, sign this three-year contract with me. And I tell artists, don't sign anything. You know, you shouldn't have to sign a contract. The only thing you sign is consignment forms and then, you know, slips when they pick up the work. Other than that, you are a free agent until you decide to work in partnership with a gallery. And I think you still have artists who have this mindset of the gallery being the savior. When for me, the gallery is your partner, their business partner. You know, it's almost like Salesforce, right? You've you've chosen this entity to be your partner to help amplify your story, amplify your work, getting into the right institutions, right collectors, but they are not your boss, right? This is a collaboration. And I think I still see artists, young artists, and, you know, mature artists who, like, are hesitant to take full control, right, for a very, various amount of reasons. And so I'm looking at who has the capacity to understand that they they are in the driver's seat and, you know, try to identify opportunities where we can collaborate. So, you know, it's hard work, unique point of view, unique perspective, I've been thinking, excuse me, I've been thinking a lot more about material, materiality, right? So, like, I worked on this exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum in Manila uh, in collaboration with Tim Tan, and a lot of, and that was Sounds of Blackness, and that was the first group show of all Black artists in Southeast Asia. And, you know, one thing that came out of putting the show together was looking at the tactility, where you have, you know, a Vaughn Spam who's making, you know, large-scale paintings out of terry cloth, right? Or Shabalala Self, who's using fabric to make work. Or a Kim Dakers, who's using tires to make sculptures. So I'm also looking at, like, where's the innovation, right? You know, how are you innovating on painting, sculpture, video? Because for me, those are the artists who are going to have the upward trajectory and, and the potential for longevity in their practice. Earlier on, on when we started the conversation, you talked about that you didn't want to deal with the stress of being an artist. Is that what you're referring to? The stress to be in the driving seat and being able to make all the decisions and also know how your work is going to be perceived by the public? No, not necessarily that. I think it's more the, the critique, right? Because like when you make something, and you put it out to the world, like, you're raw, 
right? I mean, you have some people who are able to systematize the process and it's more of a factory-like output, which, you know, that is what it is. But for most people, it's a, it's a very raw, visceral experience to say, okay, I'm now going to share something that's on my mind, my heart, my spirit, and share that with the world, right? And so mm-hmm. for me, I just couldn't navigate the constant, oh, what about this? Why'd you do that? What do you, and like, I was just like, I just wanted to just do some cool shit, you know? <laughs> and so, but that experience for me is foundational in how I deal with artists, how I collaborate with artists, how I communicate with artists. And I try to do it from a place that's constructive. I try to do it from a place of love because I already know they're being vulnerable, you know, even inviting me to be in their studio or asking for feedback on their work. And so for me, I'm not going to mince words, you know, because that's not helpful for them, but I'm going to, you know, use language that's affirming and really just, I'm making propositions on things to consider. At the end of the day, it's your work. You're going to make the choices. I'm not going to make them for you. But, you know, have you read about this artist? Have you looked at this thing? Um, You know, have you considered this? Have you thought about this? It's always an invitational to a conversation. It's never going to be like, you should make that green. You should make that blue. For me, it's like, have you considered that? Right? And then you give the artist the space to kind of wrestle with the recommendation. And they may not make it green. They may make it purple, whatever. But like that actually may elevate the work, you know? So for me, it's very collaborative. And I think I'm a big believer that all the things we do in life from career to experiences is just building blocks to get us to where we need to go. And so I think if I didn't have that experience, you know, making photographs, doing exhibitions, I wouldn't be able to be uh, a good collaborator or as good a collaborator with artists, right? Because I don't, I wouldn't have that point of view, right? Just kind of like the exercise of like, okay, how am I ever going to create something? Where am I going to find my inspiration? What do I do when I, you know, am blocked and can't create? And so being able to kind of like give some insights, some tools, you know, hang out with them, go see shows. Like, I think it also allowed me to really kind of um, approach this from a very human standpoint. I think that's one thing about the visual arts and the arts in general is that I think we're dealing with human beings, right? And I think there's a, a super blurred line between, like, personal and professional. And so for me, it's always kind of like making sure that the boundaries are clear, but also making myself available for artists when I can to be that sounding board. Hmm. Well, I also want to make a point. Perhaps you agree with not with me or perhaps you won't, but uh, you, as a curator, you're also open to the criticism and feedback because you can argue the curation is a form of art as well. Yeah. But I think for me, I agree, but I'm more comfortable in that because in my mind, I'm not, approaching this from a standpoint of whether you like or don't like my curation for me it's more how do you feel right so i'm more interested in creating evocative experiences 
inspirational experiences, experiences that uh, invite you to ask questions. And I think if my shows are doing that, then I'm good. You may go to one of my shows and not like any of the artists, but you see one thing that may trigger a memory or trigger emotion that you take with you, then we did our job, you know, because I think it's, it's a dangerous place to make shows with the desire for it to be liked and not liked, right? Because then it, it becomes virtually impossible for me because then I'm like, you become paranoid. Mm. For me, it's like at the end of the day, I'm focused on making a good show that if you're a colleague, you look at it like, oh, wow, this is well curated. This is beautiful. It's well lit, you know, but it's also natural. Like I go see shows of friends and colleagues. I'm like, ah, I wouldn't have done that or I wouldn't have put those works together. But then you see moments like, wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. So for me, these are also kind of moments to learn. Right. And to exchange ideas and be in dialogue. So for me. Curating, I'm open to that because that's a much more collaborative process as opposed to like as an artist, it's collaborative to a degree, but that's mm. still your personal expression. Let's talk a little bit about this collaboration aspect. Uh, how do you develop the connection with the artists? It, what kind of dialogues, what kind of questions are you asking? What are you interested in? The backgrounds, where they want to head it, you know, Tell me a little bit more of the process as you start discovering them and figuring things out where you can go. Well, so this is something I've said time and time again. I've discovered many artists that I like have had long-term collaborations with through other artists. Because for me, you know, another artist is a colleague. Another artist does what you do obviously in their own way. So there's a certain level of respect that's there. If they're like, you know what, this is interesting. You should check this out. Um, so I think it starts there in terms of like, how am I getting access to the input to the artist? Sometimes I make discoveries on my own. And then it just starts with a general conversation. Like, you know, so what is it work about? What are you thinking about? What excites you? And I'm trying to identify, does this feel unique? And I'm also trying to identify, like, do you even have the capacity to communicate what you're doing? Right? Mm. Because some people are incredibly talented, but couldn't tell you why they did X, Y, Z. Right? And I wouldn't say there's a right or wrong to do it, but I'm trying to look at the intentionality. Right? Because we have some people who are just, like, purely intuitive in their art making process, which is cool. You have some people who are super kind of specific and scientific and, and prescriptive, which is cool. So I'm trying to see where you sit within that. And there have been a many artists that I've met who, like, work it looks amazing. It's incredible. But their capacity to, you know, articulate what the practice is about is terrible, right? And then so I have to identify, is this person open to being in dialogue, to develop the skills, to improve, you know, telling their story. Because at the end of the day, for me, the artist needs to be their number one fan. And if they can't exude that, and I know some people are shy. I know some mm -hmm. people don't like to talk. Some people are nervous to talk. But if we're in a one-on-one -on -one dialogue conversation, you know, I need to feel that you're passionate 
and excited. So for me, I'm looking for passion. I'm looking for excitement, unique point of view. A lot of times it's also just relative to what I'm thinking about at the time. Um, and if it fits within kind of the, that jet stream, you know, because there are artists that I've known for a very long time that I still haven't had a chance to formally collaborate with. I mean, we're in dialogue and we talk, but we haven't been able to do a project, you know, and I do my best to let them know that, you know, I'm always looking for like what fits. I'm not going to put an artist in a show just to put them in a show. It needs to contextually make sense for me. Right. And so, you know, and some artists don't like that. You know, they're like, I've known you, you know, for X amount of years, we should be collaborating. And I was like, you know, the collaboration isn't always an exhibition. The collaboration could be a Q&A. The collaboration could be an essay. The collaboration could be, you know, artist talk. The collaboration could be with Art Noir. We do studio visits. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's also getting people to kind of expand, you know, their purview around what collaboration can look like. It's not just the end product of an exhibition. There's so many different ways to collaborate. Because for me, it's about dialogue and getting the word out about your practice. And so, I mean, those are kind of the starting points. And then it's just like, is there a simpatico, right? Because I need to be able to clearly and honestly communicate with you. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes that doesn't. That's life. You know, I think as long as... If it doesn't work out, it's amicable and it's respectful, you know, and that would never impede me from not recommending that artist to somebody else, you know, because sometimes it's just like, we don't jive, mm-hmm. but I know somebody else who will be totally into this. You guys should talk and collaborate. And so I'm always thinking about how do I pay it forward as well? If it's something that just doesn't work for where I'm at at that particular time. Well, you have the opportunity to work with amazing artists already and institutions. When you look at, at all of those people, do you feel like they all have a common trait, a personality trait that kind of makes them great? Or is there individuality, personalities that kind of stand out? There's anything that they have in common? I think many of them, it's it's work ethic. It's an obsession. Like, They eat, sleep, and drink creating. Um, It's the only thing that they want to do. Even when they want to take a holiday, they're still working. And so I think for me, it's this kind of dogged obsession with creating and expression. Um, Incredible work ethic. I think um, honoring the gift that they've been giving, so not taking it for granted. And not chasing the money. I mean, obviously, you want to get paid for your work, right? You want to be able to make a living. So I'm not saying this kind of kumbaya starving artists, but like they're focused on like making sure everything that comes out of the studio is A1 grade, right? Because I'm sure you've seen artists where you're like, this artist is incredible, but I could definitely tell they dialed it in. I don't even know if they made that. Their assist- it looks like assistant, right? And so these are artists, even if you have assistants, which like at some point of your production, it's necessary, but you still see that level of quality, that level of care, right? So they all care about what they're doing. They're not um, frivolous with it. 
They know that everything that comes out the studio needs to represent a point of view or perspective. Um, this is a bad word in the art world, but the brand that they're building, right? Because with a the brand, there's a promise, right? So think about whoever is your favorite artist. When you go to the exhibition, there's a promise that it's going to be an incredible, immersive experience. It's a promise that they are going to push to the edges of materiality and abstraction. It's a promise that they're going to uh, show you innovative skill sets and brushwork and painting. And so for me, it's it's looking at artists who want to fulfill that promise to themselves, but also to the audiences who will come and engage with their work. You said something about being thankful for their gifts. And uh, I, I like that. So we believe that those great artists, they're gifted. They were born perhaps that way. And of course, the work on it, you said about the word ethic and all those things. Do you think someone that perhaps don't have the gift, was not born a talent individual, but has a determination, the, uh, you know, the drive to become a great artist, can that person achieve that? Can that person be one of the greats? Or you do need that gift regardless? I think you can, because I mean, I think gift is like a, an open phrase, right? Because like, I'm not saying gift in terms of like drafts man, drafts woman, right? Because I know some incredible painters who can't draw for shit, right? So it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, it's understanding what are the tools that are going to allow you to self-actualize your expression and really get to, to that highest point of potential. And I think it's definitely possible because I tell artists all the time, You know, being successful in the art world, art market, isn't just purely predicated on talent, right? In terms of like physical talent. There's an intellectual talent. There's an emotional talent. There's a spiritual intuition that has to kind of be uh, tapped into. And I've seen it many, many times where people are like, I'll meet them, I'll look at the work, I'm like, nah, that ain't it. You know, we'll talk, they'll go back in the lab, and they'll put the hours and hours and hours in until they make a breakthrough, right? And that's why I talk about innovation, because there's always an opportunity to kind of innovate, and that innovation could just be as simple as material use. It could be like, ah, okay, instead of using paint, you know, or instead of using oil paint, I'm going to use house paint. You know, instead of using charcoal, I'm going to use tar, right? And then a lot of this is kind of more tapping into personal experiences and being able to mine them as a resource uh, that could be articulated through the practice. Um, but I definitely think, because I mean, for me, like, am I the best curator in the world? I wouldn't say that. There's still a lot of room for me to grow. There's still a lot of room for me to evolve. Um, a lot of room for me to learn. So I think the other part to your question is, I think if you're curious, that's the ultimate competitive advantage because mm -hmm. it's going to gnaw at you in your stomach. We're like, oh, what happens if I do this? What happens if I do that? Right? And it doesn't necessarily always require being prodded and nudged. So I think that's the other thing where you're going back about like, you know, what am I looking for in an artist? It's curiosity. 
Right? You you got to be self motivated in this thing because there are going to be many times where it's just not fun. You know, um, it's a lot of work. And you're dealing with a lot of people, and it's very emotional. And it has to be that curiosity that's the driver that pushes you to want to get to the next level. And I found that, like, when back to your other question, that's been, like, a connective tissue, that people are just, like, curious. You tell them one thing, and they're like, wow, that's an interesting fact. They'll order all the books. They'll go see all the shows. And then that might manifest into a project. Or next time I see them, we're able to have, like, a much more in-depth conversation about something because, like, they were, you know, catalyzed to do the research. Looking at the upcoming artists, they, you know, let me, let me ask you this again. Are you excited about the upcoming artists that you see popping up in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, there's so many artists are working across so many mediums, you know, whether it's Web3, NFT, whether it's painters, video artists, movement. I think it's, for me, it's exciting and it's ripe. And I'm always looking for opportunities to be in collaboration with those guys. Well, let me, let me ask one more, we'll wrap this up with one more question and then we can, I know you've got things to do too. So this is the time usually before with everybody comes to the podcast, we ask the same three questions and I'm curious to hear yours. We ask you to recommend a book for people to check it out, a movie, a TV show, something to watch and our next guest, someone that you love to hear and to be one of the guests here at the podcast. All right. So um, book, I would say um, two books. Um, one is Atomic Habits. Um, I think that's a great book. You know, it's great for life, but I think particularly for Good artists shows. and creatives because the author talks about the importance of just developing good habits and through developing habits and you make these kind of quantum leaps and improvements, whether that's, you know, losing weight, whether that's, you know, wanting to make 10 paintings in like a month, like whatever the case may be. I think that was a great read. And then I think um, Rick Rubin's book, I think it's called Creativity, was really good. I recommend people do the audio book because he reads it and it feels like, you know, you're on a phone call with him. But his insights and strategies around creative practice and process is really interesting. And he, you know, talks about fine art, talks about music, just different kind of artistic expressions. And, you know, I found it really, you know, insightful, you know, just thinking about like outputs and inputs, right? And like what we ingest in our mind, what do we see, what do we read? Um, how does that influence our creative output, right? And so for me, it's like, being mindful of like reading things I normally wouldn't read, right? Or going to see shows that I normally wouldn't go see in the anticipation that I'll learn something. 